So we're exploring this theme of what it looks like to live a life that is giving and that is full of gratitude. And really what we're doing is we're considering what it would look like for us to not just step into gratitude one day out of the year, although that's good in itself, but to be a person that lives this out as a way of being. Now, I don't know about you, but we, for my family, I'm not claiming this to be anything original, but for Thanksgiving, uh, and it's become somewhat of a tradition. We have family and we have friends that come over, people that, that may not be closer to family, and then we just say, hey, come on over, and they do. And, we, and there is a point in our meal, in our gathering, where everyone goes around and we say, you know what, can, can we come up with one thing we are grateful for? And, and, and every year, this is what happens in, you know, people that they come and they, they become what I call family, you know. Uh, they are now an extension of our family. Every year, it's, it's funny to me. Some people, they're ready to go. Like, they want to take the best answer, and so they go first, right? They're going to start big. And then there are other people, they catch them off guard every time. And they're like, you know what, can I, uh, they, they almost you could sense it, they don't want to, I don't know if I want to, you know, and then they kind of like think it through, and then they say something, right? And that's good as a culture, one day of the year, to, to, to spend thanking uh, others, to thank God, to become a person who recognizes all the reasons to be grateful. But what I think, as people of faith, we're encouraged to, to consider is to live a life that has um, eyes of gratitude, that, that is able to see, listen, because I think this is what happens to us when we live this way, beyond one day a year. Eyes of gratitude, you know what it does to us? It shows us where grace is already at work. That when we are able to look at life through the lens of gratitude, we automatically start to see the many areas grace is present and already at work in our lives. And if that's true, than to be a person who is not capable of expressing gratitude. Someone who is characterized as ungrateful. You know what happens to us? Simultaneously, we end up closing our eyes to all the good things. All the good things that are occurring all around us to us. And that choice, I, I'm convinced, it's not whether or not there are things to be grateful for. It's whether or not we are willing to say we are grateful. That's the choice we are presented with every day of our lives. I remember being a kid, my dad went through the season where he became just enamored with the stars, like the actual night sky. And he started uh, looking into astronomy and he started buying posters with different galaxies and constellations. And he started hanging up in my room and down the hallway and in the house. And then he, he bought these large photograph books and he would open them up and he would sit me down next to him and he would start explaining everything he was discovering. And he was just, he just loves to learn new things. So this is one of the seasons where he's learning all about the stars. And I remember being seven, eight years old, sitting down next to him. He, he, he gets really excited and he would get excited. And he would start to demonstrate everything. And I remember just sitting there, not understanding anything but my dad was excited and so I thought this must be good and he got to a point where he said you know what we're gonna go to Fremont as a family and I was like Fremont what is that and we went out in the night and we went to this place where all these people gathered together and he says we're gonna go see Jupiter I was like whoa Jupiter yeah we're gonna go see it and I remember everyone gathering together with the hot chocolate and everyone being out there and everyone was really excited when we saw a telescope and all I saw was dots in the sky. 
And my dad would say, that bright one, that one's Jupiter. And that one over there, that one's Saturn. And look, we might be able to see Mars. And we start pointing things out. And I remember it just kind of all flying over my head, just kind of like, why are we here? I'm cold. I want to go home. And it would be until years later that I remember not only did he get excited about stars, but I remember one time he got excited particularly about something uh, he had discovered that had been discovered, a black hole. And he talked to me about it. He's like, son, I want to tell you about a black hole. I was like, what is a black hole? He goes, it's this, it's this thing that when something goes near it, it gets sucked in and it gets destroyed. It's like, oh, that's not good. Black holes are not good. Do we have black holes near us? And he would say, no, no, no. The scientists, you know, and he would just talk all about it. And it kind of just flew over my head. All I knew is my dad was excited. And it would be years later. I would be out in the woods. And I would look up and I'd start to remember everything my dad had talked about. And I would notice all oh, the Big Dipper. And I would notice the Milky Way tail that we are a part of. And I would start to just get brought back to this place where I was a boy. And I remember my dad kind of just showing me creation in a different way. And it reminded me of this because, um, you know, I don't know if, we've, if we know this or not, but black holes, it, one of them made news this week. It was a discovery of the largest black hole scientists thought even it was larger than they, what they thought was even imaginable. It's possible. I thought, what is a black hole? And so I started reading it. It reminded me of this boyhood memory and my dad. And so I started looking into it. I started reading it. And I, I just, I'm no expert by any means. But here's what I discovered. A black hole, they say, is a star that has imploded on itself. And in its implosion... What's happened is the chemical reaction within it, the, the ability to radiate heat and light has been overcome by the iron that solidified within it. And the iron would create a gravitational pull where now all of a sudden the star that was able to give and emanate now turned in on itself and it imploded. And the implosion of a star creates this black hole. And the gravity of the center of this implosion ends up pulling on anything near its orbit, and it looks like something falling, like if it would be dropped out of the sky, falling down to the ground. It looks like something falling towards the center. And as it's being falling towards the center of this black hole, the gravity is so intense. They have theories. Some say that it's burned up. Others say that it is ripped from every angle possible, and it's destroyed. I say black holes, you can't see them. Actually, what we see, the outline scientists say, is the event horizon where once there was light, the last of the energy is what you see. I thought, what is, that's fascinating. What does that have to do with gratitude? I think in so many ways, nature explains the condition of humanity. See, if a if a created order that was meant to give light and meant to heat and warm planets and galaxies is able to do that when it's functioning correctly and when it implodes and it no longer functions as it should be, ends up destroying everything in its orbit, I think in so many ways, this is a picture of the human soul. And when we adopt an attitude that refuses to be grateful, that refuses to give thanks, that refuses to warm and strengthen others. And it then, instead of doing that, ends up turning inward. A soul that is ungrateful is a soul moving towards implosion. 
and one that has arrived there, well, that attitude in so many ways, you know what it does? It ends up receiving, pulling in, demanding attention, receiving many gifts, good things in their lives, but everything it receives ends up being pulled apart and destroyed. And it is no small thing to have an attitude that lacks gratitude. There is nothing that will survive that environment. Its gravity is too strong. I think the lack of gratitude in so many ways is the black hole of the soul. It can harm both the possessor of it and everyone around it. And this is perhaps in my mind why Jesus seemed to zero in on this fragile yet powerful human quality any chance he got. Because though he walked in our midst 2,000 years ago, listen, we live in the midst of the most advanced era in human history. We're not in the dark ages. We live in a time of abundance. We're not in danger of black plague or of the flu destroying entire societies like it once did. We have real threats and concerns, that's for sure. But our relative comfort, by and large, you know what it does? It makes it easier for us to be blinded to the many, many reasons we have to be grateful. Which shuts us off from his grace already at work. Perhaps this is why I think Jesus, with compassion and grace, has conversations with us. We just may not know he's having a conversation with us. And so what I'm hoping we can do is listen in on a conversation he had with a man named Simon. If you open up your handout, as we listen in, I'm hoping we will hear his voice with us. And we're told in verse verse 36 of Luke 7, this account that happened in Jesus' life. It says in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. It's almost as if Luke is creating a contrast in this passage. He's giving us from the outset three characters, not the only three in this dinner party, but three that he highlights. The first is Simon. Simon, who's known as a Pharisee. In Luke's lens, it basically means a man who is a legal observer of Mosaic law, who also separates himself from those who are not otherwise known as sinners. He chooses to invite Jesus over for dinner, which says something about Jesus. Simon regarded Jesus as ceremonial, ritually clean enough to not just have an interaction with, but to welcome and accept him in his own home. A meal in that day was a statement. And Simon made a statement. Jesus, I welcome you here. I accept you. Luke gives us this picture of this contrast, because here is Simon, the religious, rigorous man of Mosaic law, and then there is Jesus who is accepted by him, when a woman who, by the way, is given this title, an immoral woman. Immoral woman is more of not a description as much as it is a designation, almost like a, like a title of sorts. Many believe Luke was actually describing a woman who... Uh, prostituted herself for survival. And we need to know this. It should be noted. Not as justification, but as a means to understand 
Many times women, young women would end up in such a way of life because their family of origin had no other economic means to alleviate their situation. So they would end up selling heartbreakingly members of their own family to be able to provide. Or a young woman would end up in such a situation because they were not able to have a husband that would provide for them. And in that day and age, this was the way to be provided for, for women by and large. With little recourse, they would end up moving into a way of life that degraded them so that they could survive. And so we're given this picture. The religious man allowing or accepting Jesus, recognizing Jesus is acceptable. And then the immoral woman, the polar opposite, at the same time seeing Jesus as approachable. Do you see it? Jesus being between the two as a bridge. And we're told in verse 38 that then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet, putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if you were a prophet, ah, he, would, he would know what kind of woman is touching him and he wouldn't allow it. She is a sinner. The seating style would be a, like a U-shape. The food would be in the middle and everyone would be reclining onto their side. They would be having discussion as they are eating. Everyone's feet would be behind them. The home would be a rather large home. It would be Simon, a religious leader of his day. There would be a courtyard, a public place where people could come in and have access to. And the woman, designated as one who is immoral, would come in with her alabaster jar. She would make her way into the dinner party hearing that Jesus was there, knowing she wasn't invited, but she doesn't want a place at the table. She wants a place at Jesus' feet. And she kneels down and she begins to weep. And as she weeps, her tears water his feet and they, she uses her hair to comb them. And then she starts to pour out her perfume, which, by the way, would be, understandably so, her most prized possession. And she begins, and you could, you could smell the fragrance start to fill the room. A discussion that was occurring would actually turn into absolute silence. A pin drop could be heard. Because of the tension that would have invaded that space. And you sense the tension. You sense the indictment. Simon looks at this woman and he doesn't say a word. He thinks. He indicts her as a sinner. And because Jesus does not reject her, he questions his authority. And it's interesting to me that verse 40, look at how Luke phrases this. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. That's an interesting way to say something. Uh, this man never said a word, but Jesus answered his thoughts. Can I just say, whenever Jesus enters our thoughts, it's a little bit of a scary conversation. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. It's almost as if Jesus in that moment shows us something about himself. Listen, he recognized how Simon saw the immoral woman. Jesus refused to see the immoral woman through that label. And Jesus also refused to see Simon through another label. Listen, Jesus stayed in that moment as a bridge between two polar opposite parts of humanity, loving both 
having conversation and acknowledging, not rejecting either. Think about that. It's no easy thing to do. And Jesus, with compassion and love in his heart, said something, steps into something that is, yes, loving, but hardly innocent. In verse 41, we're told, Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 to another. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I, I suppose the one who, for whom he canceled a larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. That's right. And we would see this and we would say, wow, that in itself, it, that, that's con that, that would be enough to confront us. But what we don't know, what we may not know, is that Jesus was actually addressing a cultural practice. See, in that day, if you invited a guest over for dinner, you would readily and rightfully expect an invitation back. If, if, if a gift was given, one of equal or greater measure would be expected at some future date and time. It was a society that operated on the basis of not giving out of generosity's sake, but of giving to securing a future gift. When Jesus says, okay, so we know this. We know this happens all the time. There is a, a creditor, a, a lender. He, he lends 50 pieces of silver to one, 500 pieces of silver to the other. This is normal practice. Both the, the, the creditor and lender should expect that to be returned. It's not charity. But then he recognizes both can't pay back. And so he does something. Jesus ends up undermining the entire system by which society operated in that day. He says, uh, he looks at them both and he says, you're no longer indebted to me. The creditor becomes the benefactor. The lender becomes the giver. He says, now, who do you think? It's... You don't need to give me anything in return. It's yours. Who do you think loved him more? And Simon says, well, obviously the one who's, who received the greater measure. And then he says, that, that's correct. Then verse 44, Jesus, in, in a way that only he can do, turns this tense situation while she is still weeping, still brushing his feet, still pouring out perfume. This fragrance is still filling that entire area. We're told in verse 44 that then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Looking away from Simon, turning toward the woman, turning his back toward Simon, he begins to speak to Simon as he acknowledges the woman, as Simon would want to reject. He says, look, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash and dust the dust from my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. The contrast continues. Do you see it? Simon, who sees himself as holier, is shown to be a man of low hospitality and generosity. Whereas the woman who is looked down upon demonstrates what a higher degree of humility and genuine love. It's almost as if Jesus turns toward the woman who is demonstrating the hospitality Simon was pretending to give. And he's saying, look, you look down on her, but she's doing what you were only doing in pretense. The woman who is condemned by Simon all of a sudden becomes in such a way a momentary object lesson to do what? To reveal Simon's heart to himself. 
Why? Because Jesus, it's almost as if with compassion is saying, Simon, look at who you are. Do you want to be that? Verse 47, he says, I tell you her sins and they are many. They have been forgiven. They have already been forgiven. This is past tense, which means everything she's doing is out of gratitude for that forgiveness. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. And Jesus said to the woman, he now addresses her, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man? That he goes around forgiving sins. He ignores her. He ignores them. And he said to the woman, now your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That word is in Hebrew, shalom. It means wholeness. Now your dignity has been restored. You are whole. You are not just forgiven by me, but you have right standing in society. It doesn't matter if they accept you or not. You are whole. And I want you to go. And what's fascinating to me is that Luke ends up cutting off this account. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't tell us how Simon responds. He doesn't tell us how the other people at the wedding party, or the, at the dinner party responded. He doesn't tell us. It's almost as if he gives us these snapshots. Simon is shown to be a man with eyes of judgment and condemnation. The woman seems to be a woman filled with eyes of gratitude. Jesus has clear eyes seeing everything accurately. And then the question implicitly is put before us. What eyes will we see with? How will we choose to see? And there's so much here. So much for us to be able to glean. I just want to have some three, hopefully brief thoughts for us. First, I just want to put it up there. Is that, you know what this shows us? Gratitude, in my opinion, is the antidote for toxic emotions. The morally upright man had used his morality as a reason to allow his soul to what? To become intoxicated with self-righteousness and ingratitude. And that created an environment where he did not need to admit need. He didn't feel it. He was right. He was in good standing. There's no need to say thank you for what? Don't need to appreciate much. Gifts received are expectations. Entitlements. Never felt the power of light shining inside of his soul, it seems. No, it seems that his self-righteous, rigorous, religious behavior actually became his own prison that held him captive, disconnected from others, unable to recognize, look at this, unable to recognize the face of grace in the eyes of Jesus, sitting right in his own house. And yet, at the same time, we see a woman. What is she? She seems free, free from the toxins she had clearly been exposed to and stepped into, free from the judgment, free from the shame, free from the guilt. A woman stepped in, in a place and in time where decorum was everything, stepped in and what did, she was not concerned with public opinion, but she was free, unabashed. Thank you, thank you, free to express her emotion free to give what she had. Thank you. Free. In my opinion, gratitude, more and more I'm becoming convinced of this. Gratitude expresses like a weapon of freedom for the soul. It, with every declaration of what sociologists call gratitude interventions, what we would call counting your blessings, 
You know what we do when we say thank you, when we step into this place? We take control back. And every thank you, every expression of gratitude, no matter how small it might be, it's like lighting a match in a dark cave. No matter how small that light is, it cannot, it cannot help but chase away the darkness. It does so much for us. It cleanses our soul of bitterness to say thank you, of anger, of self-righteousness, of condemning others, of condemning ourselves. It has the capacity, every single expression of gratitude to say, to declare, I am not bound by my circumstances. No matter what circumstances I'm in, I am grateful. I thank you. I thank you for the breath of life in my lungs. I thank you for another day. I thank you for the opportunity to move forward. I thank you for making the opportunity to make the future different than my past. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Every expression is a declaration. I'm not locked in by my emotions. They will not rule me. I'm not held prisoner by my bitterness. No, I am cared for. I am loved. I am provided for. I am watched over. I am tended to. I am grateful. And if that's the case, listen, if gratitude cleanses the soul of the toxins that so quickly clutter our, our inner worlds, you know what it also does? It shows us that gratitude in so many ways is the path toward restoring our humanity. And when we express gratitude, you know what we do? We start to step toward being fully human again. Why? Yeah, to me, it's interesting. The man was cold and distant, ungrateful, morally upright, yes, but you know what he lacked? Compassion. The most human quality. One, by the way, that Jesus was most, most revered for was his ability to be compassionate, soft and tender-hearted, approachable by anyone. What did he say to the woman with low reputation, the immoral woman, as she was thanking him? What did she say? What did he say? Your dignity is restored. You are whole. You are whole. You are fully human. Your mistakes don't define you. Your past doesn't define you. It doesn't claim you anymore. No, I, I appreciate your gratitude. I want you to know you are now a fully human being, fully worthy of being loved. And when we listen to me, it's powerful. Humanity and dignity and peace is restored when we choose to step into a radical posture of gratitude. Maybe this is why Paul said, pray without ceasing. And be thankful always. Always. May it be a way of life. Why? Because it does something than just being cleansed. You know what? It reminds us that all the gifts we have received, there are gifts we have received that we could never earn. It reminds us that we were once indebted and we were forgiven. It's interesting. 50 or 500, it does, we were forgiven. It reminds us to never look down upon somebody else who might be indebted because we were no, no different. It reminds us that our dignity is always restored by what Jesus did for us and never by something we can do for ourselves. It reminds us that our humanity is always restored when we kneel down at his feet and express gratitude for what he has already done. What he has already done. It it removes the callousness and it replaces it with a compassionate heart that is quick to forgive, that is quick to extend mercy and grace. That is truly, you know what it does for us? Gratitude gives us the ability. 
how do I say this? It gives us the ability to be able to connect with just about anyone to the right or to the left of us. And when we meet somebody who may not be in a place of gratitude, you know what it should do? It should remind us of something. They must be in a whole lot of pain. Trapped in a jail cell of bitterness or self-righteousness. And instead of that creating judgment in the side of our soul, oh, that we would look at somebody in that place in life with the eyes of Jesus, full of compassion. For once we were there. And when we are there, Jesus looked at us the way he looked at Simon, with love and grace. Will you come? Will you come? Will you be restored to who you were meant to be? See, if gratitude restores our humanity, I want to say this. You know what it does when we step into this place of expressing thank you as a way of life, as a way of life, as a way of thinking, as a way of leading our emotions, you know what happens? We start to step into a place where it now becomes a river inside of our soul and not just cleanses us. It doesn't just feed us and restore us. You know what it does? It leads us to a place of generosity. I want to say this. Gratitude is the current of generosity. It is the pull. It will pull us into a place of wanting to be givers. It will. When our dignity is restored, all we want to do, listen, when we taste real life, true life, true wealth, you know what happens? We long. It was the woman who tasted real life that she started loosening her grip on her most prized earthly possession. She decided she wanted to give it. And, we, and she did it joyfully, emotionally, with everything she had, she gave it. It's, it's what we get to taste when Paul said, God loves, loves a cheerful giver. One who gives, not because they have to, not because they're made to, but because they're so grateful for everything they have been given. And we, we need to know this. There are things in this life that money can never buy that are far more valuable. It might be the people. It might be the season of life. It might be the privileges we have. I don't know what it might look like for us to step into a place where we allow gratitude to take us to a place where we belong to be givers. And it doesn't have to be any one way. It could be a smile. It could be a helping hand. It could be an expression of respect and affirmation. It could be somebody we see laboring and we might say, well, that's their job. And yet we want to say, no, but I acknowledge it. I see it. I thank you for it. We might be those people. We might be the people that break open a fragrance of gratitude in an environment that is hostile. And then we might change the entire conversation. We might be the ones who give the greatest gift as all. I, I find it interesting. Two things are always used in monetary values, but they're not money. That is time spent and attention given. And I just wonder if this is a season where we are meant to be grateful givers of time to those God has given us to love. And if we're the ones who say, you know what? I want to give my attention. I want to, I want to give my attention. I want to take distractions. I want to be here with you, present. I give myself. It's the greatest thing I could give. Ah, what if we became people who are able to have eyes of gratitude as a way of life that cleanses our soul of darkness, that makes us far more human. There was no one more human than Jesus. There was no one more compassionate than he. That converts our lives into a life that gives rather than takes. 
What if we're the star? It's meant to warm and shine, not the black hole that sucks in and takes and destroys. I don't know that we could ever step into that woman's place in life. But I think, I think we could do something that resonates with her way of life by saying two words, thank you. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to end this way, okay? At least this part of our time together. I want us to think about, is there one reason we have to say those two words? I want us to think about that, and then I want us to say those two words together, out loud. All right? So think. One reason. Okay. And so here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to say the word. I want you, I want you to say it. Don't leave me hanging. But we're going to say it together. Ready? And we're going to say it to the one who hears us always. And perhaps later we'll say it to the one who prompted the thought for gratitude. But here we go. Ready? Thank you. That was nice. But let's do it with some umph. <laughs> let's do it with some energy. Ready? Thank you. You feel it? Gratitude sets our soul free. It changes no matter what the environment around us. It changes the environment within us. It changes the conversation in a relationship. It could change an entire trajectory of life. May we be people who give gratitude. God, I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, that you, um, you long to give us not just your blessing, but the eyes to see your blessings. I want to see all of it. I pray you give us eyes of gratitude that are able to see you at work inside of our own hearts, inside of our own thoughts, our own emotions, inside of our relationships and our friendships, in our neighborhoods and in our work environments. I pray, God, that you give us eyes of gratitude that are able to look around life and see your grace at work in so many ways that it inspires something inside of us. It cleanses away the darkness and the bitterness and the anger and it expands our soul that we might be givers. Givers. That we might become more human. That we might be ones who celebrate your name. I ask for that, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.